Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1,128, with a release and air date of Saturday, October 10th, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community around the world, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1,128 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The Federal Communications Commission orders amateur access to the 3.5 gigahertz band to sunset. The ARRL National Convention and the Orlando Hamcation has been postponed to February 2022. Hurricane Delta prompts activation of the Hurricane WatchNet, WX4NHC, and Saturn. Amateurs were on high alert during last week's simulated emergency test. The International Amateur Radio Union, Region 2, releases its 2020 revision of its band plan. ARIS celebrates 20 years of amateur radio on the International Space Station. The King of Thailand gets his license and is now on the low bands. And an amateur radio club in California acts as radio ambassadors. We will have this interesting story as part of this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will answer the question, how do you find out what cell carrier has the best coverage? And will tell us about wiring a high-end semi-pro home network. Australia's own Anno Benshop, VK6FLAB, is here this week to tell you how CSDR will rock your world. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill continues his retrospective of amateur radio's fallen flags with a look back at one of the most famous, Helicrafters. And... Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will talk about the safest ways to climb your tower if you have to do it at night. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in beautiful downtown Albany, New York, where we were without power for 29 hours this week due to a high wind storm that only took 15 minutes to go through the area, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from the southern edge of Lake Ontario in Rochester, New York, where the leaves are starting to get some beautiful colors, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our ham radio station high atop the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, where the fall colors are just a bit past peak now, but still fantastic, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And from Studio One of our Central Florida News Bureau, I'm Fred Fitty, November Fox 2 Fox. And reporting from our News Bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where the weather phrase for this week is, Autumn, Autumn, wherefore art thou, Autumn? I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 
60 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Headlining our news this week. Despite vigorous and continuing opposition from ARRL and others, the FCC has ordered the sunsetting of the 3.3 to 3.5 gigahertz amateur radio secondary spectrum allocation. Rick Lindquist, WW1ME reports. The decision allows current amateur activity on the band to continue, grandfathering the amateur operations subject to a later decision. Amateur operations will be deleted in two phases, the dates to be established. The FCC order will go into effect on November 9th. The FCC's September 30th action followed a 2019 FCC Notice of Proposed Rulemaking in which the FCC proposed reallocating 3.45 to 3.55 gigahertz for flexible use service and auctioning the desirable mid-band spectrum to 5G providers. In the run-up to the Commission's decision, ARRL met with FCC staff members to explain its concerns and to answer questions. In subsequent meetings with the wireless advisors to the FCC chairman and two commissioners, ARRL reiterated that continued secondary status for amateurs would not impair or devalue use of the spectrum by primary licensees intending to provide 5G or other services. ARRL noted amateur radio's long history of successful coexistence with primary users of the 9-centimeter band, sharing this spectrum with the federal government and secondary non-federal occupants. The FCC action means that amateur radio will lose access to the 3.5 gigahertz secondary allocation, even where commercial operations do not exist. ARRL has argued that amateur operations should be permitted unless and until an actual potential for interference exists. The FCC proposed two deadlines for amateur operations to cease on the band. The first would apply to the 3.4 to 3.5 gigahertz segment, the second to 3.3 to 3.4 gigahertz. The FCC will establish the dates once it reviews additional comments. We adopt our proposal from the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking in WT Docket number 19-348, adopted on September 30th and published October 9th in the Federal Register to remove the amateur allocation from the 3.3 to 3.5 GHz band, the FCC said in its report and order. We adopt changes to our rules today that provide for the sunset of the secondary amateur allocation in the band, but allow continued use of the band for amateur operations pending resolution of the issues raised in the further notice. These and other recent spectrum repurposing actions stem from the Mobile Now Act enacted in 2018, in which Congress directed the Commission to make additional spectrum available to auction for mobile and fixed wireless broadband. The FCC action is consistent with worldwide allocations adopted by the ITU for these frequencies. ARRL pointed out that vital links in amateur television and amateur radio high-speed mesh networks using the band have been especially valuable during such emergency situations as the wildfires currently raging on the West Coast. 
Deleting the amateur secondary allocation will result in lost opportunities for experimentation and public service, with no public interest benefit to make up for that. ARRL argued that deleting the secondary allocation would waste the scarce spectrum resource, particularly in areas where commercial services often do not construct full facilities due to small populations. The FCC action means that amateur radio will lose access to the 3.5 GHz secondary allocation even where commercial operations do not exist. ARRL told the Commission that it should not intentionally allow this spectrum to be vacant and unused, wasting the public resource when amateurs can use some portion of it in many geographic areas with no detriment to any other licensee, just as it has in the past. Deletion of the 3.3 to 3.5 GHz secondary amateur allocation will become effective on the effective date of the FCC's order, but amateur radio operation as of that date may continue while the FCC finalizes rules to license spectrum in the 3.45 to 3.55 GHz band and establishes deadlines for amateur operations to cease. The FCC proposed allowing amateur operation in the 3.3 to 3.4 GHz portion of the band to continue pending further decisions about the future of this portion of the spectrum, the timing for which is unknown. The Commission proposed to mandate that operations cease in the 3.4 to 3.5 GHz portion when commercial licensing commences for the new 3.45 to 3.55 GHz 5G band, which is predicted to begin in the first half of 2022. We seek comment on whether it is in the public interest to sunset amateur use in the 3.3 to 3.55 GHz band in two separate phases. Example, first above 3.4 GHz, which is the focus of the report and order, and later in that portion of the band below 3.4 GHz, the FCC said. ARRL expressed gratitude to the many members and organizations that joined ARRL in challenging the FCC throughout this nearly year-long proceeding. They included multiple radio clubs, weak signal enthusiasts, Moonbounce participants, and the Amateur Radio Emergency Data Network, the Amateur Television Network, AMSAT, and Open Research Institute. ARRL will continue its efforts to preserve secondary amateur radio access to 3.3 to 3.5 GHz. Members are invited to share comments by visiting www.arrl.org slash 3-ghz-band. We recognize that any loss of our privileges will most directly impact radio amateurs who use the frequencies to operate and innovate, said ARRL President Rick Roderick, K5UR. Such instances only embolden ARRL's role to protect and advocate for the amateur radio service and amateur satellite service. There will be continued threats to our spectrum, so I urge all amateurs now, more than ever, to strengthen our hold by being ceaseless in our public service, experimenting, and discovery throughout the radio spectrum. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. 
We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. The Orlando Hamcation has become the latest thing in a long line of canceled amateur radio events around the world. The convention has been set for next February. For details, we go to Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, reporting from League Headquarters in Newington. ARRL and the Orlando Amateur Radio Club have announced that ARRL's national convention and Orlando Hamcation, which was to host the convention, have been postponed until February 10th through the 13th, 2022. The convention had been set for next February. ARRL CEO David Minster, NA2AA, said the joint decision came after considering the national public health emergency including the health and safety of all participants, the uncertainty that continues to impact our organizations, and the reluctance to travel to and attend large events. Hamcation General Chairman Michael Cawley, W4MCA, said that although postponing was a difficult decision, Hamcation's top priority is delivering a safe and successful experience for everyone. Orlando Amateur Radio Club President John Knott and 4JTK noted that holding the convention in 2022 will mark the 75th anniversary of Hamcation, one of the largest annually held gatherings of radio amateurs in the U.S. The published gate figure for 2020 was 24,200 for all three days. We want our Diamond Anniversary show to be an exciting five-star event, Knott said. We look forward to seeing you in Orlando in 2022. Cauley said Hamcation may organize some online presentations and programs for what would have been Hamcation 2021 next February. A QSO party is also under consideration. A full day of national convention programming and training sessions was previously scheduled to precede Hamnation. That will be scheduled for Thursday, February 10th, 2022. Hamcation will host the rest of the convention on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, February 11th through the 13th, 2022, at the Central Florida Fairgrounds and Expo Park in Orlando, an 87-acre lakefront fairgrounds. The Hamcation website will soon post details, including information for anyone seeking refunds and other options for pre-purchased tickets and exhibit space. Follow Hamcation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Further details and any changes will be shared via the Orlando Hamcation website. The Hurricane WatchNet WX4NHC at the National Hurricane Center and the Salvation Army's Saturn have announced activations for Hurricane Delta, the latest Atlantic storm. The Hurricane WatchNet moved to its alert level 4 on Wednesday and it was running on 14.325 MHz. WX4NHC monitors the same frequency to gather ground truth reports from radio amateurs that may assist National Hurricane Center forecasters. The NHC warned that Delta was bringing a life-threatening storm surge and strong winds to the northeastern portions of Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula, where it made landfall at 10.30 UTC. Maximum sustained winds from Delta were clocked at 105 miles per hour, making it a Category 2 hurricane. The storm was some 35 miles west of Cancun, Mexico, 
moving northwest at 17 miles per hour. Hurricane Watch net manager Bobby Graves, KB5HAV, said the net got off to a late start because it lacked propagation into the affected area overnight, both on 20 and 40 meters. The net's secondary frequency is 7.268 MHz. WX4NHC is active on both Hurricane Watch net frequencies as well as on the Voice over IP Hurricane Net, requesting surface reports from stations in the affected area with or without weather data for use by NHC forecasters. Assistant WX4NHC coordinator Julio Ripoll, WD4R, said. Winlink to WX4NHC at winlink.org with, quote, forward slash, forward slash, WL2K in the subject line. WX4NHC also has an online hurricane report form. The NHC appreciates all the surface reports from the affected area during hurricanes as they fill in gaps of not just weather data, but also give a real-time first-person perspective of what is actually happening on the ground, Ripoll said. The International Saturn SSB Net and the Southern Territory Saturn SSB Net plans to activate for Hurricane Delta Thursday through Saturday on 14.265 MHz. Hams around the United States were on high alert on last weekend, and if the situations they faced felt a little unreal, that's because they were. The carefully scripted emergencies were part of a drill for the simulated emergency test of the Amateur Radio Emergency Service. From Bedford County, Pennsylvania, to Cherokee County, Georgia, and beyond, emergencies suddenly seemed real as the first responders and amateur radio operators played it for keeps in the simulated emergency test. In this scenario, there was a search for missing hikers in the woods. Lloyd Roach, K3QNT, Public Information Officer of the Bedford County Amateur Radio Society, told WTAJ News that it was a chance to polish coordination skills with the area's firefighters, fire chiefs, police, and even the search and rescue teams. Hands in Northern Florida responded to a simulation in which excessive heat taxed the power grid, prompting the state to begin rolling blackouts. The focus there was on response to heat stroke patients and individuals with critical needs requiring hospital transport. In Georgia, the Cherokee's Aries Group tackled a simulated earthquake rocking the state. Hams in Eau Claire, Wisconsin responded to flooding evacuations and illness from polluted water. Aries members in Hawaii deployed MCOM stations for a simulated hurricane, communicating with shelters providing assistance. In the days following the simulated emergency test, Organizers are expected to assess the activity and uncover any weaknesses in procedures and communications to better prepare for the real thing. International Amateur Radio Union Region 2, the Americas, has released the September 2020 revision of its band plan and made procedural changes to shorten the time to reflect future adjustments. The band plan includes a change approved at the October 2019 General Assembly to add an amateur satellite uplink subband 21.125 to 21.450 MHz on a non-exclusive basis. This matches similar changes in the Region 1 and Region 3 band plans. A number of administrative changes have been made to the text, although the band plan itself has not been modified. These changes include 
modifications to the wording of the band plan to ensure that national regulators understand it is a voluntary document and that countries may depart from the plan based on national requirements. Definition additions, amateur radio direction finding, primary service, secondary service, and several acronyms. Inclusion of information detailing the primary and secondary users in each amateur radio allocation band. Correction of minor typographical errors. At its May 2020 meeting, the IARUR2 Executive Committee added text to the standard operating procedures that provides a process for the band plan to be updated in a more timely manner. Prior to this change, band plan modifications could only be approved at a general assembly held once every three years. Under the new provision, the Band Planning Committee may circulate proposed changes to member societies with the approval of the Executive Committee. Should no more than one objection be received within a 60-day period, the change shall be deemed accepted and reported as such at the next conference, the Band Planning Committee's Terms of References state. The IARU Region 2 Band Planning Committee has a member from each of the seven areas in Region 2, and one of those members also serves as the committee's chair. The current committee chair is Alphonse Penny, VO1NO-VA1AVR. Finally, the revised band plan added wording to make it clear to national regulators that compliance with the document is voluntary and some nations may adjust their practices based on their nation's requirements. You're listening to America's premier amateur radio news magazine of the air. This Week in Amateur Radio. Amateur Radio on the International Space Station, or ARISS, ARIS, will soon celebrate 20 years of continuous ham radio operations on the International Space Station. Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, reports. Over its 20 years, ARIS has supported nearly 1,400 scheduled ham radio contacts with schools, student groups, and other organizations. Planning for ARIS began in 1996 as a cooperative venture among national amateur radio and amateur satellite societies with support from their respective space agencies. The ARIS ham radio gear actually arrived on station before the Expedition 1 crew headed by Commander Bill Shepard, formerly KD-5GSL. The FCC issued ham radio call sign NA-1SS for ISS operations. After Expedition 1 arrived on station, some initial tests with ARIS ham radio ground stations and individual hams confirmed the ham gear was working properly. The first ARIS school contact was made with students at Luther Burbank Elementary School in Illinois on December 21, 2000. While student-to-astronaut radio contacts are a primary objective for ARIS, 
The capability has also inspired further experimentation for amateur radio in space and the evaluation of new technology. In September, Aris announced that the initial element of its next-generation ham radio system had been installed in the space station's Columbus module. The new radio system replaces equipment originally certified for spaceflight in mid-2000. NASA is commemorating the milestone with a newly reproduced infographic highlighting the educational contacts via amateur radio between astronaut crew members aboard the ISS and students. NASA produced a video of students talking with astronaut Chris Cassidy, KF5KDR, during an ARIS contact in May of 2020. Before and during the scheduled ham radio contacts, students learned about space and related technologies and radio communication using amateur radio. ARIS has inspired thousands of students promoting exploration through educational experiences spanning science, technology, engineering, the arts, and mathematics. Harris relies on a large network of amateur radio operators and volunteers, many associated with radio clubs in the communities where students and groups participating in the contacts reside. Harris volunteers support satellite ground stations, serve as technical mentors, and provide additional help in the areas of education, community outreach, and public relations. The onboard ham station also provides a contingency communication system for ISS crew, Several astronauts have also enjoyed using NA-1SS to make casual contacts with and delighting earthbound members of the ham radio community. The next proposal window for U.S. schools and educational organizations to host an amateur radio contact with a crew member on board the ISS opened on October 1st for contacts that would take place from July through December 2021. Like many educators who have coordinated ARISS radio contacts for their students, Teacher Rita Wright, KC9CDL, an ARRL member, described the first ARISS school contacts as inspirational and having a lasting impact on their community. Five months after their contact, nearly 500 students greeted Bill Shepard when he visited Luther Burbank School. Wright said it was like tossing a pebble into a stream. The ripple effects are still occurring, and I suspect will continue to occur for a long time, she said. We have a young staff, and witnessing these events has inspired some to look for other interdisciplinary projects. They are the beginning of their dream. Many of our students are looking forward to careers associated with the space industry. Southgate Amateur Radio News is reporting that the King of Thailand just received his amateur radio license. Thailand's King Maha Vajira Longkorn, officially known as King Rama Ten, received his crown in May of 2019. Now he's also got an amateur radio call sign. On the air, His Majesty is known as HS10A. At a ceremony held recently in Bangkok, in the Dusit Palace, the king received donations of an ICOM IC7300 transceiver for HF and an ICOM 9700 for VHF UHF. He also received a variety of antennas and other equipment for the Royal Shack. The advanced class license and the call sign became his on September 24th at a ceremony attended by the nation's communications regulator, the NBTC Secretariat, represented by General Sukit Kamasundara and the Radio Amateur Society of Thailand under the royal patronage of His Majesty the King, led by its president, Jakri Hangtomkom, HS1FVL. Be listening on the air for the call sign HS10A. That's not just the King of Thailand, 
but the patron of the nation's radio society. The Chinese foghorn over the horizon radar is once again showing up in the logs of the International Amateur Radio Union Monitoring Service in IARU Region 1, which covers Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. With more details on the story, we go to league headquarters in Newington, where Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, files this special report. While the reports reflect what's being heard by stations primarily in Europe, the same interference can and does affect other parts of the world, often depending upon the time of day. So named by former Monitoring Service Region 1 Coordinator Wolf Hedel, DK2OM, because of its sound, the Foghorn was first reported operating in the amateur bands in 2017. Current Region 1 Monitoring System Coordinator Peter Jost, HB9CET, said significantly more OTH radars from the Far East were found during August, especially the system known as Foghorn. Jost noted that the Foghorn facilities generate a signal with a bandwidth of 10 kilohertz. The Foghorn was being heard on 40 meters in the vicinity of 7113 to 7123 and 7165 to 7175 kilohertz. Other over-the-horizon radar signals tracked to or believed to be in China are showing up elsewhere on the band with equally broad signals. Some international broadcasters also have set up shop in the amateur bands, including Voice of Broad Masses 1 on 7140, and Voice of Broadmasses 2 on 7180, both with 9 kHz wide AM signals. China Radio International has been transmitting at the very bottom edge of 20 meters, its signal slopping over into the amateur band. A radio war between Russia and Ukraine has generated signals on 40 meters, Russia on 7055, and Ukraine on 7060, airing what the monitor called very loud and persistent signals every day with, as he put it, plenty of abuse, propaganda, profanities, and agitation being passed back and forth. The Chinese foghorn signal is frequency modulation on a pulse with 66.66 sweeps per second burst. The Chinese over-the-horizon radar is also monitored at various other places on 20 meters. Russian Kontenyar over-the-horizon radar signals were spotted on several 20-meter frequencies in August. An idling signal at 14.221 kilohertz is believed to be coming from Kazakhstan, showing up every evening. A foghorn over-the-horizon radar has been appearing on 14.338 to 14.348 kilohertz. Amplitude-modulated radars with huge signals reported to be taking up segments on the 40 and 20-meter bands. A monster F-1B signal has also been heard on 14.301 kilohertz. The role of the International Amateur Radio Union Monitoring Service is monitoring the amateur bands to search and identify transmissions sent by intruders. This is important because of the amount and variety of intruders is rapidly growing, the IARU said. A number of national monitoring coordinators and volunteers have been watching our bands for many years but more needs to be done to raise the awareness of societies and countries where no national monitoring team exists. Also, existing groups can still help by sharing detailed information worldwide with others. Their motto is, monitoring is teamwork. The IARU said it's important that many member societies as possible file interference complaints with national regulators whenever intruders are heard. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net.
The 2019 ARRL Annual Report is now available in print and online. The publication's release was delayed as a consequence of the pandemic. Print copies for members who are interested will be available soon. ARRL President Rick Roderick, K5UR, called 2019 an exciting year for ARRL, with several new initiatives moving through planning and development for rollout in 2020. Two of them, on the Air Magazine and the ARRL Online Learning Center, signify steps taken toward the new generation of hams that I've been talking about in the past few annual reports, President Roderick said. They've been asking ARRL for help finding their way in amateur radio for so long, wanting to know everything from how to serve their communities, how to integrate the ham radio hobby and service with all the demands that modern life makes upon them, and even simply how to determine which parts of ham radio interest them. President Roderick also cited the development in 2019 of the ARRL Online Learning Center, an array of online courses that will, at first, serve new hams and later expand to courses and materials for hams at all skill levels. The Online Learning Center is expected to launch in early 2021. 2019 was more than busy for the ARRL. It was productive and constructive, President Roderick concluded. We're growing and changing, and we do it for all of you, the members, with an eye on our mission to advance the art, science, and enjoyment of amateur radio. ARRL membership was essentially flat from 2018 at 156,755, likely a result of the membership dues increase in 2019, but still slightly above projections. The ARRL Volunteer Monitor Program was developed in 2019, replacing the official observer's program. The new Volunteer Monitor Program is a formal agreement between the FCC and ARRL in which trained volunteers will monitor the bands and collect evidence that may be used both to correct misconduct and to recognize exemplary on-the-air operation. The report summarizes a raft of responses to emergencies and disasters by amateur radio emergency service volunteers. ARES membership grew by 3,130 in 2019, and a new ARES comprehensive plan was introduced. Financially, ARRL had a particularly good year in 2019, producing a $5,906,000 gain from operations, along with strong investment markets resulting in an overall net asset gain of $3.75 million. The report includes complete financials for 2019 compared with 2018, and the numbers show that total revenues and expenses were both slightly up from 2018. Dues revenues remain ARRL's largest revenue source at $6.77 million for the year. Members have continued their generous support of the organization through voluntary contributions, both with and without donor restrictions, the report recounted. A total of $1.7 million was contributed in 2019, with almost $400,000 coming from bequests. Total expenses were up by less than 1%. Total ARRL assets stood at $36.6 million at the end of 2019, up from $32.4 million at the end of 2018. 
In summary, ARRL's financial condition continues to be good and provides a strong financial foundation for the organization, the report said. This financial position will also provide the resources for ARRL to maintain its solid infrastructure while meeting the evolving needs, desires, and demands of today's and tomorrow's amateur radio community. The Chinese foghorn over the horizon radar is once again showing up in the logs of the International Amateur Radio Union Monitoring Service in IARU Region 1, which covers Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. With more details on the story, we go to League Headquarters in Newington, where Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, files this special report. While the reports reflect what's being heard by stations primarily in Europe, the same interference can and does affect other parts of the world, often depending upon the time of day. So named by former Monitoring Service Region 1 Coordinator Wolf Hedel, DK2OM, because of its sound, the foghorn was first reported operating in the amateur bands in 2017. Current Region 1 Monitoring System Coordinator Peter Jost, HB9CET, said significantly more OTH radars from the Far East were found during August, especially the system known as Foghorn. Jost noted that the Foghorn facilities generate a signal with a bandwidth of 10 kilohertz. The Foghorn was being heard on 40 meters in the vicinity of 7113 to 7123 and 7165 to 7175 kilohertz. Other over-the-horizon radar signals tracked to or believed to be in China are showing up elsewhere on the band with equally broad signals. Some international broadcasters also have set up shop in the amateur bands, including Voice of Broad Masses 1 on 7140 and Voice of Broad Masses 2 on 7180, both with 9 kHz wide AM signals. China Radio International has been transmitting at the very bottom edge of 20 meters, its signal slopping over into the amateur band. A radio war between Russia and Ukraine has generated signals on 40 meters, Russia on 7055, and Ukraine on 7060, airing what the monitor called very loud and persistent signals every day with, as he put it, plenty of abuse, propaganda, profanities, and agitation being passed back and forth. The Chinese foghorn signal is frequency modulation on a pulse with 66.66 sweeps per second burst. The Chinese over-the-horizon radar is also monitored at various other places on 20 meters. Russian Kontenyar over-the-horizon radar signals were spotted on several 20-meter frequencies in August. An idling signal at 14.221 kilohertz is believed to be coming from Kazakhstan, showing up every evening. A foghorn over-the-horizon radar has been appearing on 14.338 to 14.348 kilohertz. Amplitude modulated radars with huge signals reported to be taking up segments on the 40 and 20 meter bands. A monster F-1B signal has also been heard on 14.301 kilohertz. The role of the International Amateur Radio Union Monitoring Service is monitoring the amateur bands to search and identify transmissions sent by intruders. This is important because of the amount and variety of intruders is rapidly growing, the IARU said. A number of national monitoring coordinators and volunteers have been watching our bands for many years, but more needs to be done to raise the awareness of societies and countries where no national monitoring team exists. Also, existing groups can still help by sharing detailed information worldwide with others. Their motto is, monitoring is teamwork. 
The IARU said it's important that many member societies as possible file interference complaints with national regulators whenever intruders are heard. Mark Stillman, KA3JUJ of Newark, Delaware, has been appointed as ARRL Delaware Section Manager. He succeeds Bill Duvenek, KB3KYH, who had served since 2014. Duvenek has moved out of the Delaware Section. ARRL Radio Sport and Field Services Manager Bart Drenke, W9JJ, appointed Stillman after consulting with ARRL Atlantic Division Director Tom Abernathy, W3TOM. The appointment is effective immediately and extends through the end of Duvenek's term on December 31st, 2021. Stillman is a member of the local Amateur Radio Emergency Service, an ARRL volunteer examiner, and an American Red Cross volunteer. He serves as treasurer of the Delaware Repeater Association. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. How do I know what my cell phone coverage is going to be like with company X, Y, or Z? You can't trust the companies. Who can you trust? We'll answer that question next. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Uh, Welcome. Good to see you. I think a lot of us, we see advertisements, you know, Verizon, can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Uh, we've got the best coverage, AT&T, we got the best coverage. And you know you can't trust those advertisements. Uh, we also see coverage maps. And if you look at the coverage maps and compare those with your actual experience, I think you'll probably also say, yeah, those are, um, what's a kind way to put this? Aspirational coverage maps. Probably the best thing to do it's a little bit uh, old school, is to ask your friends and neighbors, your coworkers, people who have cell phones in the same places you plan to have a cell phone, and say, well, who's your carrier? Do you like them? How many bars do you get? That kind of thing. Because the problem with cell coverage is it's very local. A great carrier in one city might be the worst carrier in another city two towns over. And it, it, there's no such thing as, you know, the best nationwide coverage there are independent third-party entities that will rate this stuff i'll show you first something this is something that pc magazine has been doing for well as long as i've been reading pc magazine back since they were a print magazine they actually go around to cities used to be sasha would do this with his uh, co-authors now they get volunteers they go around to cities give them phones and say test the speeds that's a little better than you know, just reading a, a recommendation or a map. They go to 26 cities. They just did theirs about uh, two weeks ago in uh, September. And again, this is going to be a little bit less useful. You can look back in time and so forth, but this is nationwide. So AT&T is the fastest, then T-Mobile, and then Verizon. But that's not necessarily the case. For instance, if you're in New York City, Verizon is going to be the best. So that's the problem. One of the things they did find out is that 5G, especially on AT&T, is actually slower than 4G 
Sasha says, in almost all the cities we tested. T-Mobile, which offers probably the widest spread for 5G, using its low-band 600 megahertz network, it's most uh, everywhere in the country, and, and they say is faster than 4G, but it isn't very fast at all. Verizon's network is very fast, but it's only available in a single-digit percentage of our test location. That's 5G. You're probably not too worried about 5G, and you can look at this, because honestly, most places don't have 5G. You're pretty much talking about uh, LTE coverage. There are places you can go that do something similar. There's a commercial entity. There are a number of them. The one that I often refer to is Open Signal. It's at opensignal.com. And they do this, as you can see, all over the world. But uh, just as an example, we'll go to the USA. Now, you have to do this. These are coverage maps. Again, independent third party with actual phones in actual towns. So these coverage maps are much more accurate than the carrier's coverage maps. Let's just click on AT&T. And, and you can choose which one you want. Oh, it looks like... Uh, they also, if you want these maps, they also, they used to put them online. Now it looks like you have to download their app and put it on your phone. So iOS or Android, look for the Open Signal app, and, and you can put it on your phone. And they, as I said, they do all four of the major carriers. But even that's not really as granular as you would like. For instance, T-Mobile, which is pretty good here in Northern California in our Petaluma area, is non-existent inside the office. Uh, when we when we rented this uh, facility, of course, the first thing I did, because I'm a T-Mobile customer, is pulled out my phone and I said, um, no bars, no bars. So we actually went to T-Mobile and they provided us with a little kind of repeater they call it a femto cell that's the technical term each company has its own name for it micro cell for at&t and the like but they gave us one of these little micro cells it plugs into your internet and then in effect puts a cell tower inside the building so everybody inside here can use t-mobile just fine because we have a little t-mobile cell here we could do the same for other carriers that's probably not a good solution for most people in this case uh, we got it for free in many cases. In fact, the carrier, if you say, look, I, I can't use you, I'm going to go to somebody else, will say, well, we'll try this. They'll give it to you for free. They also sell it, but I wouldn't recommend paying for it. It's it's pretty expensive. There are these you know, third-party, more reliable coverage maps, but they're not going to give you as granular the, as information as your friends and neighbors will on the other hand if you're a truck driver and you want to know is it going to how well how, how well is it going to cover i-80 or you know i'm going coast to coast how well is it going to be cover you know the places i go a coverage map especially from open signal will probably be pretty useful because you can look in the map map out your your routes and see if you're going to get coverage and at least you'll know where you won't get uh, decent coverage at home and at the office ask coworkers and friends they're the best resource but as you have already observed the worst person you can ask is a cell phone manufacturer you know cell phone provider because they they're very uh, optimistic optimistic in their in their coverage uh, this is something I think is important for all of us if we're moving carriers we want to know who's going to provide the best service there's you know a lot of other things to consider with a carrier like price but ultimately if it doesn't work, it's no good at any price. Uh, let's see. What else can we talk about? If you're building a house or you've got the walls open for some other reason, maybe renovations, it's always a good idea to put in. I would put in some conduit, a tube, 
so that you can upgrade it uh, down the road. We put in, uh, because we were doing it after the fact, we couldn't really put in conduit. I would have loved to, but guy was going up in the attic and down in the crawl space and feeding the Ethernet down, and then then his partner would be would have a little hole in the wall where they were going to put the Ethernet plate, and he said, left, left, I can't. Hey, yeah, I got it. Right there. And then he'd pull it through. You couldn't really do conduit. That's why you want to do conduit, though, because if you need to upgrade down the road, uh, it's a nice thing to have. We put in Cat6 Ethernet cables, which I think will probably last us a while. They can go up to a gigabit. In fact, you know, under short enough throws, they can go up to 10 gigabits. I don't think we're going to ever need faster than that. <laughs> Famous last words. You'd love to be able to put in fiber optics in the year 2050. <laughs> but uh, for now, I'm pretty happy with the Cat6. So then you can plug in your computers and so forth. But in order to do this, you need some fairly heavy duty. You really need to dedicate a closet or a space to a rack. Suddenly, you're now doing the networking You're you're where you've got a wiring closet, you've got a rack, and you've got some rack-mounted... You still kind of the same equipment that you had before. Uh, there's a router. There's a cable modem or a DSL modem. There's a router. Uh, there may also be... Uh, in my case, there is a, a pretty big switch. That's what the other end of those Ethernet ports is connected to. And Typically, 24 probably be enough, but uh, you can get them in 48. And we, did, we got a 48 for expandability down the road because the system we got, you can also attach telephones and security cameras and a lot of other stuff, too. So just for expandability, I thought, well, I'm gonna, I can get a 48. It's not that much more expensive. And the rack typically will have what they call power over Ethernet, the, uh, the switch, rather, which means this is actually really handy. You can plug an Ethernet cable into it, and at the other end of the line, you can plug a switch or a Wi-Fi access point that doesn't have to be plugged into the wall. It can get its power through the Ethernet cable. So we have Wi-Fi access points scattered throughout the house. They're on the ceiling. That's the best. Higher up is always better, so that's the best place to put them up on the ceiling. That way these bags of water called humans and pets that walk around don't interfere so much. And all you had to do was drop an Ethernet wire through a little hole in the ceiling because that gives you both data and power. That's nice. So we put those up. Uh, it also powers switches if you want little mini switches. And there are some places where even with two or four Ethernet ports in the walls, like my home theater, I maybe needed eight ports. So I put a little switch there. They can be powered through the Ethernet as well. That's kind of nice. You don't have to have a lot of power plugs. These installations typically will use gear that are not household names unless you're a enterprise IT guy. In my case, we used Ubiquity, but there's also Ruckus, the Aruba Systems, Ruckus routers. And there's also Meraki, M-E-R-A-K-I. There are other brand names as well. Uh, these are names well-known in, in businesses and enterprise, but not so well-known in the home. It is more expensive. It's, you know, it's kind of an investment. But uh, if you're working from home and you've got a kid or two or three working uh, at school from home, sometimes getting the better Ethernet connections is worth it. So we were happy to do it. And I'm very happy with the Ubiquity gear. Although the Ubiquity gear does, uh, you know, they, uh, <laughs> there is some uh, little glitches in it initially. Uh, had some trouble and had to reset it a couple of times and so forth. And, but uh, once, it got, uh, once it gets working, and it is now, it's very stable. And it has lots of features that you can turn on or off, including the ability to separate out 
visitors. So you can have a guest network. You know, most consumer-grade wireless routers will do that. But it's a, it also can separate out Internet of Things devices. These are both using a technique called VLANs or virtual local area networks. And you can you have to make rules about how they can talk to one another and so forth. But it's possible to kind of set up a more secure system where these, you know, inexpensive light bulbs that go on Wi-Fi and toaster ovens and Alexas and, and, and Googles, they're all on a separate network away from your computers which have your personal data and are more hackable you know if if somebody gets into my amazon echo through a flaw i don't have to worry about them getting into the rest of the network so there are features to these higher end systems you pay for them you pay for them typically uh you would uh, spend perhaps around 150 dollars per uh wired port that seems to be about a typical price so you, as you put those in, that's the cost, depending on how easy it is to get in the attic or in the crawl space, how easy it is to get into the walls. You'll spend a little bit more for the hardware. Actually, I guess a lot more. You know, it's funny. When, uh, when I took out the consumer Arachnus gear and uh, I had ordered the Ubiquity, there was a period of time we didn't have either. So I put the Eros that I'd been using back in place, and actually they did a great job. Uh, they did a really nice job, even, you know, through the switch to the... I had a dumb switch from TP-Link that I was able to get all, light up all the Ethernet ports, and they it put the Eero beacons around the house. And actually, we used that for three or four days, and I would be willing to bet nobody noticed the difference. So the nice thing about these new consumer mesh systems, they're pretty darn good. They're pretty darn good. It's a, it's an interesting question. You know, if I weren't the tech guy, I might have just said, oh, the heck with it. We're just going to go with that. But it's it's a... It's a learning experience. And, of course, Euro did get updated by Amazon. They're going to have Wi-Fi 6. That'll probably be sooner than my uh, Ubiquity will have Wi-Fi 6. So there. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. In 1932, at the height of the Great Depression, Bill Halligan, W9AC, age 33, formed a new company. He called his new business the Halicrafters. The name was chosen as a composite of the two words Halligan and Handcrafted. Bill adopted the creed, Handcraft Makes Perfect, and it was used in the first logo of the new enterprise in late 1932. A few radio sets were built, the S1 through the S3, at an old manufacturing plant at 417 North State Street in Chicago. Immediately, the young Halicrafters company was beset with problems. Most of the hams these new radios were designed for hadn't yet recovered from the Great Depression and did not have the money to buy the radios. As of this wasn't enough, 
RCA came down hard on Halicrafters for patent infringements, insisting that no more radios could be built until they granted Halicrafters a license, which they had no intention of doing. Bill didn't give up. Procuring as many orders for his radios as possible, he contracted with a licensed manufacturer to build them in small production runs of 50 or 100 sets. He had to use these orders themselves for collateral, an arrangement that at best was very limiting. What Halicrafters needed was a license to build under the RCA patents. In 1933, Silver Marshall Incorporated went into bankruptcy, and Bill saw an opportunity to get his coveted license. A deal was engineered. Bill and Halicrafters took over Silver Marshall Incorporated, renaming it the Silver Marshall Manufacturing Company and operating it from the State Street address. This relationship was also plagued with financial problems and ended in late 1934. Bill was released from his obligations to Silver Marshall with the help of the Echophone Radio Company. Echophone was also in financial trouble. For all practical purposes, it was out of business. But they had a 50,000 square foot plant and a good RCA license. Bill struck a deal with the owner of Echophone and the two companies merged with Halicrafters being the dominant partner. During the first few months, the company did contract work for other radio manufacturers and large mail order houses in order to build its cash reserves. In late 1935, they started producing their own line of communication receivers, which we are all familiar with. The SX-9 Super Skywriter was the first model to be produced in significant quantities. Halicrafters' policy was to build a quality product with all the state-of-the-art advances and features at a price that was affordable. With this policy and good management, they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. By 1938, Halicrafters was the most popular manufacturer of communications receivers in the U.S. and was doing business in 89 other countries. Bill decided on another policy, that as new features and technical advances were made, Halicrafters would bring out new models rather than just upgrade the same basic model. This explains the proliferation of different models which in a three-year period from 1936 through 1938 had reached 23. Until 1938, the production was limited to receivers and associated accessories. Now it was time to produce transmitters. The onslaught of World War II took the U.S. by surprise. There was a shortage of military radio equipment and tremendous government demand for electronic equipment of all types. Many of the existing Halicrafters products and designs were pressed into military service. The company geared up for wartime production and was responsible for many new designs and innovations. Probably the best known of these were the HT4, the BC610, and the SCR299. Production of ham radio gear and related items was all but suspended until 1945. By August of 1945, the war was over and so were wartime production and most government contracts. It was time again to produce ham radio equipment. A new line of consumer electronics was needed to satisfy a public hungry for products they had gone without for over five years. 
The old plant had served Halicrafters well during the war years, but the company needed a modern image for their facility and product line in the post-war period. A new plant was designed and built at 4401 West 5th Avenue in Chicago. This would be the company's home for the next 20 years. The products were given a modern look with the help of Raymond Lowy, a well-known industrial designer of the time. One of the first post-war sets produced in the new facility was the SX-38. The logo was again changed, this time to the familiar Circle H. Production also began on the new line of consumer electronics, including radio phonograph units of all shapes and sizes, AM-FM receivers, clock radios in brightly colored Bakelite cases, and television receivers, the first of which was the T-54. Many of the consumer products bore the name Echophone, which had all been but forgotten by this time. Competition was stiff in the consumer electronics field, and this Halicrafters line never really took hold, although it stayed in production until the late 1950s. Even so, the company was doing better than ever, employing 2,500 people by 1952. The 1950s were very successful for the company. The United States' focus during the 50s was civil defense, so many Halicrafters products from this period bore the names like Civic Patrol and Defender. Some of the ham radio products became classics, like the HT-32 and the SX-101. Much of this equipment is still in use today and is sought after by nostalgia buffs and collectors. By 1958, Bill Sr. wanted to retire and the company was sold. Little is known about this transaction, but apparently it failed and the Halligans returned to resume control of the corporation a short time later. In 1963, Halicrafters purchased Radio Industries Incorporated of Kansas City, running it as a subsidiary. Radio Industries produced many of the ham radio accessories and some major equipment like the HT-45. Also during this period, Halicrafters was the corporate sponsor of REACT, which was formed in 1962. The Halligans continued operations until about 1966, when the company was sold to the Northrop Corporation. This ended forever the Halligans' involvement in Halicrafters. Northrop moved the company to a new plant in Rolling Meadows, Illinois, and modified the logo again. While a subsidiary of Northrop, Halicrafters produced ham radio products for a few more years, but the main function was producing paramilitary equipment in Northrop's Defense Systems Division, much of it in El Paso, Texas. For all practical purposes, the last ham radio item produced was the FPM 300 in 1972 and a few accessories through 1974. There were also some CB units and portable AM-FM shortwave sets of Japanese origin released under the Halicrafters name. At this point, Northrop turned Halicrafters over to its partner, Wilcox. The annual sales of Halicrafters have been falling off sharply since 1970. On December 4, 1975, Wilcox sold the company to the Breaker Corporation of Dallas, Texas. Breaker packed up 14 semi-trailer loads of Halicrafters records and parts and moved the company to Grand Prairie, Texas. They set up shop there with several former Halicrafters employees of the late 60s and 70s who relocated to Texas. 
A few more CBs and various portable radios of Japanese and Taiwanese origin were released, but Breaker began to suffer severe financial difficulties. Around 1979, Breaker ceased doing business and Halicrafters along with it. On August 24, 1979, Clarence E. Long engineered a purchase of the name, logos, and what was left of the company. A new corporation called Halicrafters International was set up in Miami. It also had international trademarks. Long set up shop and hired a large staff in anticipation of receiving large government contracts to build paramilitary radios for the armed forces. The new Halicrafters International had to prove to the government that it could handle the contracts as well as the old firm had. Something went wrong, however. Long's plans failed to be approved and Halicrafters lost the contracts. In the early 1980s, Long set up a plant somewhere in the New England states and also had convinced several well-known people in other parts of the company to join in the new venture. Despite all this activity, Long was in serious financial and legal trouble. He declared bankruptcy on June 1, 1988 in San Antonio, Texas. All of his property, including the Halicrafters name, logos, and whatever records were saved, were made property of a court-appointed trustee. Since this time, the Halicrafters name has not been used, and for all practical purposes is non-existent, except in the memory of ham radio operators. In our next installment, we will continue looking at fallen flags in the amateur radio field. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, for this week in amateur radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. Foundations of Amateur Radio When you start playing with software-defined radio, you're likely to begin your journey using something with a display that shows you a lovely waterfall, gives you a way to pick out a frequency, decode it, and play it over your speakers all over the house. Likely, your first effort involves a local FM radio station. These graphical tools come in many and varied forms, available on pretty much anything with a display. Tools like SDR Sharp, CUSDR, FL Digi, and WSJTX. That can be immensely satisfying as an experience. Underneath the graphics is software that is essentially translating an antenna voltage to a sound, in much the same way as that happens in an analog radio. There are parts that get the signal, then they get translated and filtered, translated some more, decoded, and eventually you have sound coming from your speakers. During the week, I caught up with a fellow amateur, who pointed me at the work of Andros, Hotel Alpha 7 India Lima Mike, who for a number of years has been quietly beavering away making various tools in the SDR landscape. One of those tools has the innocuous name of CSDR, a command line software-defined radio digital signal processor. It started life on November 1st, 2014, and has had many updates and community changes since.
This tool has no graphics, no user interface, nothing visible that you can toggle with a mouse. And yet, it's one of the coolest tools I've seen in a long time. And from a learning perspective, it's everything you might hope for, and then some. Before I explain how it works, I need to tell you about pipes. They're much like water pipes in your home, but in computing, they're a tool that allow you to connect two programs together so you can exchange data between them. One of the ways that you can think of a computer is a tool that transforms one type of information into another. This transformation can be trivial, like say, adding up numbers, or it can be complex, like filtering out unwanted information. The idea is that you take a stream of data and use a pipe to send it to a program that transforms it in some way. Then use another pipe into another program, and so on, until the original stream of numbers has become what you need them to be, creating a transformation pipeline with a string of programs that sequentially each do a little thing to the data. That stream of data could be numbers that represent the voltage of the signal at your antenna, and the final output could be sound coming from your speaker. If you were to take that example, you could use one tool that knows how to measure voltage, pipe that to a tool that knows how to convert that into FM, and pipe that to a tool that knows how to play audio on your speaker. Converting something to FM is, in and of itself, a series of steps. It involves taking the raw numbers, extracting the part of the samples that are the station you want to hear, decoding those and converting that into something that is ready to be played on your speakers. This process is fundamentally different from using a so-called monolithic tool that does everything behind the scenes. The person writing the software has decided what to do, how to do it, in what order and in what way. If you want to do something that the author hadn't thought of, like say listening to a new type of broadcast, you'll be waiting until they update the software. In another way, this is the difference between making a cake from raw ingredients and buying it up the road at the shops. One final piece of the puzzle. There's nothing preventing you from piping the output of your program to another copy of the same program. So, if you had a tool that knows how to do the maths behind filters, AM and FM decoding, translating lower sideband into upper sideband and vice versa, band filtering, etc., you'd be able to set up individual steps that translate a signal, one step at a time, from raw antenna data into a sound you can hear. You would have all the building blocks for the fancy tools that you're used to. CSDR is such a tool. For example, it knows how to set the gain of a signal, how to up and down sample, how to shift frequencies, how to decode them. It knows about RTTY, PSK, AM and FM, and do about a hundred other things. So far I've mentioned decoding, but there's nothing stopping you from starting with plain text, piping that into CSDR and converting that to a PSK31 audio signal, and transmitting that audio on your radio. To make it even better, because it's so modular, you can look at the math behind what's going on and begin to understand what's happening behind the scenes. Of all the tools I've found in the past decade, I have to confess, this is the one that has stopped me in my tracks. Thank you to Randall, VK6 Whiskey Romeo, for introducing me to this tool, and to Andras, Hotel Alpha 7 India Lima Mike, for writing it. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima Alpha Bravo. I'm Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, and here's the AMSAT report from Bruce Page, KK5DO. 
Two more satellites have reached their end of life. MO105 decayed in the Earth's atmosphere on September 9th, and MO106 is due to decay on October 15th. They will be removed from the AMSAT TLEs. Final reminder, if you're interested in attending the free virtual AMSAT Annual Space Symposium and General Meeting, it takes place next Saturday, October 17th. You can still register until 5 p.m. Central Time on Friday, October 16th. Opening remarks begin at 9 a.m. Central, followed by presentations, AMSAT Education News on CubeSat Simulator, ARIS News, AMSAT Engineering Report, and then the general meeting. Full information is available at amsat.org under the Events tab. This is W2XBS with a propagation forecast for the week beginning October 11, 2020. Tad Cook, K7RA in Seattle, has reported that geomagnetic activity quieted down over the October 1st to 7th reporting week. Compared to the previous seven days, average daily mid-latitude A indices declined from 15.6 to 6, and average planetary A indices slipped from 22 to 7.1. There were no sunspots this week and only one in the previous seven days. Average daily solar flux went from 73.4 to 71.8. On late Thursday, October 8th, however, two new Solar Cycle 25 sunspots appeared. They are both in the Southern Hemisphere and, as we go to air, had not been assigned numbers. Check spaceweather.com to see the official sunspot numbers. Predicted solar flux over the next 45 days is 72 on October 9th through the 14th, 70 on October 15th to the 18th, 72 on October 19th to the 31st, 70 on November 1st to the 14th, and 72 on November 15th to the 22nd. Some weak sporadic E from Kansas to Florida October 6th, around 1900 UTC occurred, but stations farther east had some outstanding propagation. Stations in Ecuador worked north to the Gulf Coast, then New England on 6 meters. Some sporadic E was spotted from New England to Florida and Florida to Mexico, E-skipped is rare in October, too. And as a reminder, a Propagation Bulletin archive is available for customizable propagation charts. Visit the VOACAP online for Ham Radio website. According to a SpaceWeather.com report, Scott Tilly, VE7TIL, in British Columbia, Canada, received a signal from the NASA Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, flying just 274 kilometers, or about 170 miles, above the red planet's surface. The planet Mars is approximately 38.59 million miles from Earth, according to NASA, its closest approach until 2035. The signal was an X-band carrier containing no data or telemetry. Its purpose is to allow for Doppler tracking, Tilly explained. The rapid change in pitch of the signal is caused by the relative motion of the satellite and the observer. He used a homemade satellite dish to hear the orbiter. Tilly enjoys tracking down signals from dead satellites, zombie satellites, and spy satellites. But the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter was a first for him. The Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter's signal is weak, but it is one of the louder signals in Mars orbit, he said. The spacecraft has a large dish antenna it uses as a relay for other Mars missions. 
With the proximity of Mars these days, it was the perfect time to try. In 2018, Tilly saw the signature of the imager for magnetopause to Aurora Global Exploration, a NASA spacecraft believed to have died in 2005. That discovery delighted space scientists. You're listening to America's premier amateur radio news magazine of the air. This week in amateur radio. International Amateur Radio Union Region 1 President Don Beatty, G3BJ, wants to raise greater awareness regarding the interference potential of wireless power transfer for electric vehicles, or WPTEV. He is urging IARU member societies to contact national regulators to make them aware of the technology's potential for RF pollution. Beatty notes that wireless power transfer for electric vehicles' chargers can run as much as 20 kilowatts. Wireless power transfer for electric vehicles was on the agenda for World Telecommunications Conference 2019. The International Telecommunications Union radio communication sector conducted studies to access the impact of WPTEV on radio communications and suitable harmonized frequency ranges. Those ITUR studies identified the 19 to 25 kHz band, as well as bands in the 50 kHz and 60 kHz range for high-power WPTEV and the 79 to 90 kilohertz band for medium power WPTEV. The consensus of WRC19 delegates was to make no changes in the International Telecommunications Union radio regulations with respect to wireless power transfer for electric vehicles. The Netherlands IARU member society Veron has posted the text of Beatty's remarks on this subject. The discussions about WPTEV have reached a point where they are moving from the technical to the political arena, Beattie said. Discussions with a national regulator indicate that we must now take action at the national level. The amateur service, but also other telecommunications services, will experience the consequence of WPTEV. Beattie urged members' societies in Region 1 to contact national regulators preferably in person, to explain why radio amateurs are so concerned. He pointed out that large charging times in populated areas could generate harmonics that make radio communication very difficult. Models show that this also applies to the wider environment of a WPTEV installation, BD said. Broadcasters, stationary, and mobile services share these concerns and provided input to CEPT Electronic Communications Committee Report 289. Beattie noted that the WPTEV discussion has been going on for a long time. The technology is similar to that used for wireless charging of cell phones. The wireless charging of electric cars is done with large coils, he explained one of them on the ground under the vehicle, the second in the car. Typically, about 22 kilowatts is transferred wirelessly through those coils. 
This is done using frequencies between 79 and 90 kilohertz. Technical and operational standards for WPTEV are under development. Wireless power transfer for electric vehicles developers are seeking noise level limits that are some 30 to 45 dB above current noise levels, BD said. Limits that have a serious negative effect on the radio spectrum, he asserted. In the interests of the future of amateur radio, we need to get the attention of national regulators, BD concluded. This is about the future of amateur radio. The Amateur Radio on the International Space Station, or ARIS, program is seeking formal and informal education institutions and organizations, individually or working together, to host an amateur radio contact with a member of the International Space Station crew. The deadline to submit proposals is November 24th. Proposal information and documents are on the ARIS website. An ARIS introductory webinar is set for October 8, 2020 at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. That's 0000 UTC on October 9th in North American time zones. Registration for the webinar is required. ARIS anticipates that contacts would take place between July 1st and December 31st, 2021. Crew scheduling and ISS orbits will determine specific contact dates. To make the most of these radio contact opportunities, ARIS is looking for organizations that will draw large numbers of participants and integrate the contact into a well-developed education plan. Crew members aboard the International Space Station routinely conduct scheduled amateur radio contacts throughout the year. These contacts are approximately 10 minutes long and allow students to interact with the astronauts through a question-and-answer session. Amateur radio organizations around the world, with the support of NASA and the space agencies in Russia, Canada, Japan, and Europe, make these contact opportunities available to educational organizations. An ARIS contact is a voice-only communication opportunity via amateur radio between astronauts and cosmonauts aboard the space station and classrooms to educate students about what it is like to live and work in space and to learn about space research conducted on the ISS. Students will also have an opportunity to learn about satellite communication, wireless technology, and radio science. Amateur radio organization volunteers provide the equipment and operational support to enable communication between the crew on the ISS and students around the world using amateur radio. Because of the nature of human spaceflight and the complexity of scheduling activities aboard the ISS, organizations must demonstrate flexibility to accommodate changes in contact dates and times. Proposal information and more details including expectations, proposal guidelines, and proposal form, and dates and times of informational webinars are on the ARIS website. Send any questions to aris.us.education at gmail.com. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. Over the years I've been a tower climber, I've had to work at night. And when I tell people I climb at night, I usually get more comments from that than I do from climbing in general. Most of the towers I've been on are close to populated areas. And since most populated areas are full of streetlights, I've noticed that most of these towers are easily seen at night 
and I often do not use my headlamp while climbing up the tower. Now this may only apply to towers less than 200 feet tall or job sites on the tower lower than 200 feet. Since the light from streetlights shines upwards, even a small amount of light is usually makes the tower stand out boldly against a black sky. Now it may not appear when you first arrive at the tower that it's easy to see, but after your eyes adjust to the dark, it will become a lot easier. When climbing downwards, the lighting is different, and here is where I use my headlamp. I wear a headband type flashlight I purchased at our local Walmart for about $8. I also bring along extra AA batteries. If you were going to do a job that would last more than 20 minutes or so, or higher than ambient light would allow you to climb upwards without extra light, I would recommend a style of light with an external gel cell type battery. Also, a surprising amount of light can come from the moon. And when you get above the street lights, you may be surprised how well you can see with no added light. Some climbers do not like to work on wet towers, which is understandable. Lots of times at night, dew forms on towers, which can make them dripping wet. And I've noticed over the years that this wetness usually only goes to about 20 or 30 feet or so above the ground and then stops. Some of the best scenery I've seen is late at night on a tower. At night, fog can make the visibility poor on the ground, but often stops before you get to the spot on the tower you need to get to. Climbing above the fog on a night with a full moon can provide some spectacular views as the fog looks thick enough like you could step off the tower and walk on top of it. Too bad this would be nearly impossible to photograph. Finally, I've noticed that Mother Nature tends to calm down at night, say after midnight. If there's a job you've been needing to get done but wind or storms have kept you off the tower, check out the weather after midnight then give it a try. Don't forget that ground crew and never climb alone, especially at night. Also, don't forget extra batteries for your flashlight. And don't use the kind of flashlight you hold in your hand. Spotlights on the ground will only blind you on the tower, so don't let people shine lights up at you. When I do a night job, I often call the local police to let them know I'll be there so I don't get a light shine in my eyes. Plus, if they're bored and the donut shops are closed, they may even offer to be a ground crew for you. Now remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. You can email me about this subject at fmgreg at yahoo.com. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. Although the lockdown of Johnson Space Center postponed amateur radio training and licensing over the past seven months, NASA ISS HAM Project Coordinator Kenneth Ransom, N5VHO, was able to work with all of the new astronaut class graduates as well as offer some refresher courses with already licensed astronauts. Licensed astronauts on the International Space Station may operate the on-station HAM radio equipment without restrictions. 
Astronauts often participate in amateur radio on the International Space Station contacts with schools and groups on Earth. NASA astronaut Kayla Barron, who completed her introductory course in June and received basic ham radio operations training in late September, recently tested and received the call sign KI-5LAL. European Space Agency astronaut Matthias Maurer passed his amateur radio exam on July 30, and he got his basic ham radio operations training in July. He is now KI-5KFH. Astronauts Shane Kimbrough, KE5HOD, and Shannon Walker, KD5DXB, completed the refresher course earlier this year. Two other new astronauts are in the queue to take the technician license exam. Solar physicist Leif Svalgard of the W.W. Hansen Experimental Physics Lab at Stanford University has predicted a maximum sunspot number of 128 plus or minus 10, slightly better than solar cycle 24. The overall average at 132 plus or minus 47, he said, but none of these numbers are substantially different, so one could probably just go with the wisdom of the crowd. All predictions are that we consider to have the underlying assumption that the sun has not changed in its behavior on a time scale of a few centuries. The Maunder minimum may be a possible violation of that assumption, and that there will be no such changes in the near future, in spite of speculative suggestions. Those included one of his own in 2013. Svalgard characterized the science of solar cycle prediction to be still in its infancy, borne out by the extreme range of predictions of cycle 25. The first ever New England Aries Academy, originally scheduled for the ARRL New England Division Convention at the Northeast Ham Exposition in November, will instead take place October 13th through the 31st via the Zoom conferencing platform. The presentations are available to all and the Zoom URL will be sent to all who registered via the New England Aries Academy webpage. Five basic track classes will aim at those just getting started in Aries, and more advanced classes with workshops will target those already familiar with the basics. Hour-long classes will be held on weeknights starting at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, that's 23.30 UTC, and two-hour workshop sessions will be held Saturday mornings from 9 o'clock until 11 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, or 1300 to 1500 UTC. Topics covered include go kits, hardening your station or repeater, expedient training and utilization of volunteers, working with served agencies, which is a panel discussion. Participants will be able to ask questions and interact with instructors via chat. Other New England Ham Exposition events just ahead include the Ham Exposition Virtual Banquet on November 7th, Ham Boot Camp also on November 7th, and a W1A special event November 6th through the 8th. Attendance for all events is free. Newly licensed hams in the United Kingdom are finding videos to be an increasingly valuable tool in the shack during the pandemic. The Radio Society of Great Britain is taking amateur radio back to basics in the hopes of helping beginners. The Society has produced a six-part series of videos for the thousands of new Foundation license holders who were successfully tested via remote invigilation but were not required to take practical assessments. That's where the videos come in with their practical advice and a look at how to do things hands-on. 
Amateurs such as Rob, M0VFC, Bob, G0FGX, and Dan, M0WUT, take the beginners through the basics of setting up a station and making that first contact on FM and on SSB. Other videos show how to adjust an antenna's length for the lowest SWR and how to use an antenna matching unit or tuner. Another video introduces the digital modes. For hams who would prefer to view all the basics in one sitting, the Society has also produced a full 30-minute video highlighting all six skills. All the videos can be seen at rsgb.org forward slash foundation hyphen practicals. The El Dorado County Amateur Radio Club hopes that having a booth at the recent National Night Out in Pollock Pines, California, was compelling enough to give people a good impression about ham radio. But, just in case, the club brought along something perhaps even more compelling, some radios to give away. No, these weren't amateur radios. They were the low-power, license-free family radio service, or FRS, handhelds used often by hikers and campers and, the club hopes, kids. Youngsters won the radios in drawings the club held at the October 3rd event and were soon on the air, spelling out their names in the International Phonetic Alphabet. These are the same kind of handhelds used in combination with GMRS radios in the local neighborhood Radio Watch public safety program the club implemented. The club's public information officer, Alan Thompson, W6WN, said that its neighborhood watch has, quite unexpectedly, become a potent recruiting tool for new hams. Sometimes, after all, starting with low power can make a high power impression, especially with the youngest future radio operators. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's Capital Region. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.